chapter 19 would be a good plan. So we're studying our way through Matthew's gospel and we're crashing into a kind of an interesting verse this morning that really needs to be addressed because it's been sort of misused. So Matthew 19, let's pray. Father, we're looking at your word, so we pray that we would always cut it straight as the Apostle Paul says, deal with it properly, take it for what it says, not play with it or abuse it, and we ask for your understanding this morning in Christ's name, amen. So, last week we were looking at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 on the subject of divorce, and we talked about how the rabbis in the first century had really created a very liberal divorce culture in Israel in the first century, and, and actually it was, it's kind of shocking how easy it was to get a divorce in a supposedly Bible-based culture, you know, and how people simply expected that if anybody wanted to, they could just get a quick divorce, and that was it, for any reason. And we mentioned that there was a minority of rabbis who condemned that easy divorce culture, reading Moses um, more solidly, and how people... Um, it became a, a point of contention. So Jesus, uh, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him to take sides, you know, on this very narrow view or this very extremely broad view. And so they come up to him, verse three, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And they're asking probably to tr get him to be unpopular. They don't say the reason here, but um, it says they were testing him. So. I think they were trying to get him to take the narrow view because obviously the liberal view is always more popular for more people, right? So he asked them if, he asked them if they know their Bibles. He says, have you not read? And whenever he says that, he's pulling out the Bible. So um, at least, uh, you know, figuratively speaking. And he says, you need to look back at Genesis chapter one and chapter two, the very beginning, because this is how God made everything. He says, God says married people are one flesh, not two, one, and, and then he very solemnly pronounces what is often said in the wedding ceremony, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, verse six there. So what's really interesting is the reaction of the disciples of Jesus to him saying that. They don't go, yes, that is true. Yes, we should love our wives for the rest of our lives. They, <laughs> They say in verse 10, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. So these guys were like flies, right? I mean, they were like, <laughs> they wanted somebody to open the screen door in case they needed it. So they're like, they're, that's kind of surprising. But that tells you how the culture at the time was so, um, you know, divorce-minded. Like it's, it's got to be really easy or we're not even going to bother getting married. They couldn't comprehend making a commitment before God they could not get out of. They just couldn't think that way. So the for better, for worse was not in the ceremony back then. It was not a promise they made. So they wanted out if it got worse. That's, that's it. So Jesus patiently lays out for them. He, he kind of answers their exclamation of that. It's better not to marry by uh, giving them some options. So as servants of God, as men who are going to live for God, the God who created marriage, they have some options. If they're unwilling to commit to marriage for life, the only other option is to be single, or what we would call celibate, you know. And he says that path requires a special grace. So verse 11, not all men can accept this statement. The statement being their statement that it's better not to marry if you can't get a divorce. But only those to whom it has been given. So it's a gift. It's a gift from God to be able to 
stay celibate for your whole life and not marry. And of course, some people can do that, and they can do it pretty easily. Other people kind of find themselves in that situation, and it can be really hard. So um, that's why I read that earlier portion this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, you know, it's better to marry than to burn, and, and that's just true. So he's saying to them, I think you guys are being kind of flippant about marriage when you're saying, well, if it's that way, then I'm going to get married at all. Because he says only a few people can handle singleness like that, the celibate life. And for most people, the risk of getting married is, is, a, is a better path. And some people can lead a celibate life. They can, lead, they can be uh, happy, contented. Um, sometimes life imposes that condition upon people. And that's why Jesus brings up the subject of eunuchs in verse 12. So I told you we were gonna deal with verse 12 today, so that's what we're looking at. In kind of ways you probably don't expect, but hang with me, okay? Or stay with me, <laughs> safer. He's going to contrast what we might call sovereign celibacy, which is not chosen. So by, when I call it sovereign, I mean that in God's eternal plan for all things and his providential ruling of the world, you end up in a situation where you've gotta be single. Um, so it would be sovereign celibacy, for example. Um, he's gonna contrast that with making the choice to remain celibate, something the disciples we're really just speaking about in a way too frivolous manner. Well, we'll just stay single, you know. So God is ultimately sovereign over all that happens in life. So, um, but there are these, by his permission or his divine will, there's, we find ourselves in situations sometimes where it's imposed on us, this single life. So marriage just doesn't happen for some people. It just never happens. And, and something happens in marriage that takes away Marital intimacy, such as long-term illnesses. That's, in a sense, a celibate life in a marriage. Um, that re- you just, uh, you're not really given a choice in those situations. You're just in that situation. So verse 12 really requires some, some thought. And we might see the word uh, eunuch here. Well, let me read it for one thing really quickly here. So... There are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So we might see the word eunuch there and as a modern person kind of skip past that, like, oh yeah, whatever about eunuchs. Because we don't do eunuchs in the modern world. You don't meet a lot of of eunuchs. But... um, we do often encounter situations where circumstances leave us single in, a, in, a, in an undesirable way. That's not what we want to be. So to be content in being single is a really wonderful thing. And it's a gift, he says. It's to those to whom it is given. But it's not for everyone. And before we think more on that, let me talk about eunuchs because he mentions it several times here. Eunuchs appear pretty frequently in the Bible. And lots of recorded history helps us understand what that is, what it means. So it's almost always associated with people of power. Not that the most powerful person is the eunuch, but the powerful person like a king has eunuchs serving him. So around people with power in the ancient world, and this goes, some of the earliest recorded history that we have speaks to this. So it goes way, way back. I mean, very, very early, many thousands of years back. And... Very early on in human history, men of 
power and um, prominence and all of that, collected women, right, as a demonstration of their wealth. So we call that a harem in the I dream of genie world, right? That kind of thing. That's how we think about it. But, but that was true in all of these, many of these cultures, almost all of them we know about. Um, and of course, you have to have living quarters for all of these women and then all of their children and all of that. So it gets kind of big and complicated. You have to, that's why you have to build a big palace because you got all these people, right? So one thing kings don't want is anybody touching their women, right? So at the same time, they need to have men to kind of oversee the management of the palace. They don't want to do all that work and they got to have other guys do all of that kind of stuff. But um, and serve the king and be ready for him and with him even when he's with his wives or a wife here or there or his family or his kids or in that part of the palace. So they have to have guys that are around his women. So the solution to that, of course, is to have them castrated. So that, that goes all the way back. That's why eunuchs are made eunuchs. That's what Jesus is talking about there. So the Greek word for a eunuch is actually a, a what's called a, a bedkeeper or the English used to call it a chamberlain, the guy whose job it was to take care of the rooms and the familial situation for the king or the lord. So the, the rooms, the chamberlain, is the, he's the keeper of the rooms. Make sure everything's clean, make sure everybody's got food and clothes and all that kind of stuff. So he just runs the household, if you will. He oversees all of that kind of a thing. So um, they were always eunuchs. And the kings started liking having eunuchs because eunuchs were kind of safe. They... Um, they didn't have a lot of else on their minds, so they, had, they could do their work more diligently. They were never going to have children, so there's no threat of them like thinking, hey, if I knocked off that king, I can establish my own dynasty. They have no dynastic ambitions at all, right? So um, they're just, they just have to live out their life as a life of servanthood. So, so they started castrating everybody. I mean, just about everybody in the king's palace that was male would be castrated. In fact, we don't know if everybody called a eunuch was actually castrated because so many were that that name just becomes synonymous with that word becomes synonymous with a court official, just somebody that worked in the court, the king's court. So in the Bible, it's often translated, the word eunuch is often translated official. But most of them were real eunuchs, at least in these certain cultures like Persia and Babylon and those, that's, that's what they did with people. So it's pretty interesting how all of that lays out. The eunuchs could be musicians, they could be artisans, they could be scribes, historians, sometimes soldiers. Um, a very famous Chinese admiral was made a eunuch and um, things like that. So it, and it goes all the way from Europe all the way across the entire Middle East through India into China. And China was really big on castration. And all of these cultures did that. It was just done. And some of them could be very highly placed in the service of the king. So from ancient pictorial representations of eunuchs, and you can always tell them because they don't have beards, they never grow, because they're castrated very young, and they don't go bald. You know Hippocrates, the Greek doctor? He said, eunuchs, they don't get gout, and they don't go bald. So, uh, so guys, it's too late for, for us. If that, if, if that was the most important thing to you, you already lost your, your thing there. So in many cultures, uh, this was very big. In fact, at the height of Persian power, the provinces of their empire, the Babylon and Assyria, where we have a record of this, they sent as tribute to the king of Persia 10,000 talents of silver, which is a lot of money, a huge amount of money, and 500 boys to be castrated for the service of the king. So each of these areas are sending 500 
young men to the king to be um, set that way. If you ever read the book of Esther, it takes place in Persia, where all the court officials are made eunuchs, pretty much. And, um, and just in chapter one, seven of them are named. They are the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. It was eunuchs who delivered the king's order to Queen Vashti, remember, to come and kind of entertain the, the guys at his feast. Um, we have names from some of them. Hegai is called the king's eunuch who was in charge of the women. And Shaashgaz, name your kid that. that that's a good name, Shaashgaz. Sounds more like an orc, right? It's an orc name. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines, that was his name. In chapter four, it mentions Hatak from the king's eunuchs from whom the king had appointed to attend Esther. So Esther had a eunuch just over her. Um, in chapter six, verse two, there's two other eunuchs that are named, Bigdana and Teresh, who were doorkeepers. They were eunuchs too. So um, that was normal in running the palace in those days. So when you think about Daniel and Shadrach, and Meshach and Abednego who were young men captured from Jerusalem when Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon and taken to Babylon. It doesn't say it, but they were almost certainly made eunuchs. In fact, the prophecies in earlier parts of the Bible like in Isaiah about when Babylon does come and take over Jerusalem and takes their young men away, it says to make them eunuchs. So that's probably what happened to them. That's why you don't hear about Daniel's wife probably. But... Um, it's also interesting that in the law of Moses, um, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, a male who had been castrated could not enter the assembly of the Lord. They couldn't serve as priests, and they couldn't be direct participants in temple worship. The reason isn't given for that, but most likely it was to keep their parents from castrating their children to offer to the king to have an in with the king. That's what people would do. They'd pick one son out of the family and offer them to the king to serve the king so they would have an, kind of an in with the more important people in the palace. And God didn't want that happening, so he, he said, look, if you're gonna do that to your kid, he can't even go into the temple. So it kind of kept the Jews from doing that like a lot of the other cultures did. It was supposed to keep them from doing that. As we all know, if you follow Old Testament history, they did almost every wicked thing their neighbors did anyway. But uh, there does seem to be less of that, though, um, in Jewish culture. So anyway, um, there's one reference um, to a, a eunuch that served in the court of King Zedekiah, who was a bad king, Ebed-Melech. He's kind of a hero in the book of Jeremiah. He actually, when the, Jeremiah's enemies threw him into a cistern, to kill him or let him starve down in there. Ebed-Melech actually got him out. He told the king about it and rescued him and um, saved him. But he wasn't a Jew, he was an Ethiopian, which is kind of interesting, but he's a eunuch. He's kind of a famous eunuch. Um, okay, so that's kind of the background for all of that. Uh, it is possible that some eunuchs were married, and we're gonna talk about that too. So now there again, we're getting into that issue. Is, could that be cases where he's just called a court official with the word eunuch? or he actually is a castrated eunuch. A good example would be Potiphar. Remember Potiphar's wife tried to hit on Joseph? And Potiphar was married, but he's called a eunuch. That could just mean he was an official. Or, there's a lot of history there we don't know, right? Could be, and maybe that's why she hit on Joseph, because he was a eunuch, I don't know. But um, why does all this matter? It matters because we have unique moral issues in our culture that have never been faced by the church before, and it's kind of important that we grasp this verse because, well, as the sexual revolution in America and the Western world 
continues to expand and um, becomes normalized, and there's sort of these ever-expanding circles of perversions and, and lifestyles and um, feelings that people have and try to act on, and, and the push is to say it's, it's equal to the natural God-created human sexuality that you know, biology just obviously points to, and battle lines are being drawn in churches. So I'm talking about churches, not the broader culture today. So the world is always gonna be the world. But Christians have a choice. We're gonna either accept what God says about things or we're gonna em- embrace what uh, is called the spirit of the age and just go with the flow that everybody else is doing. That's what we're gonna do too. The dominant belief in this particular moment in history, um, 2019, when we li- where we live, which is rooted in the worship of self above all things, is that all kinds of sexual behaviors and desires are are said to be acceptable. And the key word that's used in our culture is the word same. And there's even anthem-like songs, you know, that were really popular, same love, right? That's what you hear, and it's all the same. Whoever you love, whatever you wanna do, it's the same. Same means, in my dictionary, same means no difference. So even if the difference is incredibly obvious, Um, it's not supposed to be regarded as a difference. And if God's word and human reason says one thing is natural and another thing is unnatural, just based on biology, for one thing, and then God's word, um, we're supposed to believe it's all the same. Same love, that's what the expression is. All the politicians use that thing, same love. Well, the emotions might be similar in different kinds of relationships, but since men and women are incredibly different, a union of a man and woman is not the same as the union of two men or, or two women. It's not the same. It's not the same. There might be similar emotions involved, but it's not the same love at all. It's impossible for it to be that way. So part of this discussion um, in churches um, that abandon Scripture and those who hold to Scripture no matter what the culture says is, how do you handle these certain texts of Scripture? And Curiously, Matthew 19, 12, and the concept of eunuchs plays an important part of this discussion. That's why I'm gonna talk about it that way this morning. Jesus uses the word eunuch in Matthew 19 in reference to three different types of people, right? He wants to make a point about being single contrasted with being married. And remember, he's talking to the disciples after they said, it's better not to marry if it's gonna be like that. So he says, as far as the kingdom goes, that life of being single can be a choice. And one that for some people is a gift of God. It's given to them. So let me read it again. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So now this saying of Christ has always been understood in a pretty straightforward way. There are three kinds of eunuchs, the born that way eunuchs, the man-made eunuchs, like all those boys sent off to the king of Persia to be castrated and made eunuchs for service, and those who simply choose to be celibate and serve the Lord in a more full way. That third use has always been regarded by the church, always, ever since the beginning, as not physically becoming a eunuch, but living a celibate life, that, that idea. So... The born that way eunuch has always been regarded as somebody that has a birth defect or a congenital condition, which does happen. Um, But where in our culture, in our culture, when somebody says born that way, what are they usually referring to? 
It's almost always referring to homosexuality or some other kind of, kind of different desire that's sort of outside the limits of biology, right? Something unusual. Ten years ago, Lady Gaga, that fount of wisdom, even wrote one of those really preachy, moralizing pop songs called Born This Way, right? That was her big song. And she follows the trend of modern society that nothing is wrong or shameful if you feel it. If you feel it, it's good. That's her theology, if you will. So you, me, we're the arbiters of right and wrong in ourselves. That's the way it's supposed to be. All human desires are valid. All human desires are good. That's, that's sort of the prevailing thing. And the song is using an expression that entered into the culture back then, um, before her. She picked that up from what was already uh, kind of a pride declaration of the homosexual movement. We're born this way. And that came because a scientist said, he did this study, and he found out that Male and, um, and, and amongst men at least, um, homosexual brains and heterosexual brains are, are different. And so we were promised, now we're talking quite a while ago, 30 years ago, something like that. We were promised that very soon genetic proof would show us that people are born that way. You can actually see it in the genes. That's what we were told. It was never found, unfortunately, for the movement people. And that scientists' conclusions are considered no longer valid because brains, brains are affected by your behavior. So if you do certain things repeatedly that are, and another person does different things, you can actually see that in the shape of their brain. So, so even all the scientists said, that's not necessarily genetic, you know? But he said, yeah, yeah, it must be. So they looked for the gene, they've never found the gene. So they started talking about epigenetics, which is sort of these things that sort of help genes know what to do, and they've never really been able to prove it from that either. So more recently, and you might be behind the times, more recently in broader culture, we are told it no longer matters whether it's genetic or not some kind of interior disposition, um, if one is born this way. It doesn't matter, because the culture war has already been won, and they don't need to use that argument anymore. Everybody believed that, oh, it's, we're born this way, so they, it was just kind of all done. But now, now genetic proof, they're not kind of stopped looking, because that sort of gets in the way of the new stuff, you know, that you can just, how you feel, you can be a woman or a man or two-spirit or binary or all these kind of things. So born this way, it's kind of, it's kind of, off the table now. So soon the people that, that believe born this way are gonna be the old people because the younger generation is not being taught that except by old people. So that's kind of a significant thing. The younger generation's gonna say, well, who cares where the feelings come from? As long as you have the feelings, they're valid and they just have to be accepted, right? Whoever we feel drawn to is valid. It's okay, it's okay, little guy. <laughs> There's, um, the, you know, USA Today, the big newspaper, that's sort of the national newspaper. In 2017, they had a pretty significant article declaring, and listen to the quote here, continuing to embrace the slogan, born this way, social scientists and legal scholars say is not only limiting, but unnecessary. Gay or straight, male or female, the bodies we're born with don't determine everything about who we are. There's nothing inevitable about our lives based on DNA. That's a sea change. So you thought born this way was a sea change from how people used to view things. That's a sea change from that. So the born this way thinking is kind of old hat. And, and because of the, all, the, all the new forms of 
human beings, you know. My daughter was just telling me last night that um, she, she knows this woman who wears a tail because she's actually an animal. She's a Furby or whatever they call them, and she, she dresses like a, an animal. So, um, but that's who she is. Now, you know, DNA probably would show that she shouldn't have a tail, but, but she's wearing one because she, that's who she is, you know? So that's the new thing. So born this way doesn't matter. Genetics don't matter. That's kind of out the door. So wow, we don't need born this way because nothing is fixed and nobody cares anymore anyway about why you're that way. So it's just kind of letting that go. But there is one group in our country who's clinging to born this way. Like it's an essential thing. And those are churches that are becoming what you would call gay affirming or welcoming or there's nothing wrong with it. Well, yes, we'll marry you, that kind of thing, which is a very growing trend in America. Now, the churches that stopped believing in the Bible about 100 years ago, those churches were gonna do that anyway. They don't care. They'll just flow with whatever's happening. But we're talking about churches that claim some kind of allegiance to Scripture. So there's more and more of what you might call gay-affirming churches. So those churches... Born this way is really important. So they look in the Bible for ways to show that God accepts a a, a lifestyle that the Bible pretty clearly condemns. I mean, the law of Moses says it's an abomination, and Paul in Romans chapter 1 just clearly describes that it's unnatural and it's a sin and all of that stuff. And there's nothing contrary to that. So they have to look for verses in the Bible which kind of confirm that it's really okay. So to be gay-affirming is a real challenge since the Bible's so clear that homosexuality is not God's will. So many popular books, you can go on YouTube or just grab a book off the shelf in the bookstore, written for Christians to teach them or lectures given to Christians to teach them that the Bible really isn't against it. Because even in churches that have rejected biblical authority and especially in sort of, sort of neo-evangelical churches where the Bible's supposed to be an authority, the average Christian really does think the Bible's about something that's sort of from God in some sort of way. So it's still important for people to prove that the Bible is sort of affirming. Well, where are you gonna find that since it's so clear against it? Well, they find ways. They, they do find ways. Um, and it's a hard case to make, but they do it. Especially since Jesus, it's hard because right here in Matthew 19, we talked about it last time, verse four, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, but therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. You, I mean, you can't really escape that, the fact that it's male and female, that's what a marriage is, but to rationalize certain kinds of behaviors, people will do anything to convince themselves that God is okay with gay and they'll, they'll use the Bible. So the Lady Gaga song says, um, born this way, this, the actual lyrics are, I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. That's how the song goes. So I don't sing it quite with the style and flair that she does. But... Um, so, and that's a very clever trick, and I, I, I kind of, um, I, I get it, and I appreciate the value of what it does. God doesn't make mistakes, does he? So if this is what I am, if I have a tail, if I'm supposed to have a tail, or whatever, I mean, whatever the thing is, it must be good. Now, what's wrong with that? If I am this way, God doesn't make mistakes, so it must be good. 
What does it kind of ignore? There's kind of an event that happens in Genesis chapter three that sort of explains the entire world we live in and why there's wars, murders, rapes, uh, Me Too movement, and all these kind of things. Why is that? Because man fell, yeah, yeah, kind of ignores that, yeah, yeah. Um, The world is fallen and broken and plunged into ruin because men, mankind, ignored God and that's why we need a savior for all of our sins. You, You really don't wanna say, whatever I desire is because I'm made that way. You would be horrified if I looked in my heart of some desires that I have and said, you know, I'm made that way. I'm not, no, I'm, I'm broken that way. I'm twisted that way. Sin twisted me that way. I don't blame God for every dark turn of my heart. Oh, thank you. I, you made me that way. Sin has corrupted me this way. That's what happened. We all have different ways that sin has corrupted us and broken us, twisted us. We all are profoundly broken people. I, I didn't choose my sinful desires. See? I didn't choose it. Don't say I chose it. I didn't choose it. So I'm, I'm sure that most same-sex attracted people didn't choose theirs either. I believe it when they say, well, I didn't choose to be like this. I didn't choose my sins either. They're just there, right? I'm a fallen, broken creature. But see, now we're moving past born this way culturally and that actually offers a lot of hope because if you're not born this way, there's some room. There's some room to change there and do things differently. The psychology of fallen humanity, fallen human beings is very complex and we don't know where all of these desires come from that we have. We know that we're broken and twisted people. So we don't know the cause of certain desires that we have or, or the bents that we have. Well, sometimes we do know. Honestly, uh, we had a young man that was raised in this church. He's been gone for a long time and um, kind of a difficult home life. And years after they, he, he was gone off to college and went off and had his life, uh, we kind of ran into each other and he was a fully expressive homosexual in that lifestyle, fully, completely. I was kind of surprised. And, um, you know, we talked and stuff, but but... Later, I found out from his mom that he had been molested for years by his uncle, for years. So, that's, so yeah, did he ask to have those desires? But that's a pretty common, that's not always true, but it's a pretty common background for people with those desires. And when their formative years, they were abused, horribly abused. So we can't imagine all the things that people go through. You know, I don't blame him. For, for feelings that he has because he was attacked, at a, repeatedly attacked at a tender age when his sexuality was forming. I don't blame him for being broken, but I would want him to know he wasn't born that way and it's, nothing's fixed. We might have said, he might have said I'm born that way, but you know, when, then it came out what the actual history was. So he was a victim and that sort of abuse is probably a contributing cause to many people that have that bent in their lives. And since DNA is not the cause, there's actually hope for him. It's interesting that when people are acknowledging that it's not genetic, it's not genetic, but laws are being passed in progressive states like ours and New York and uh, Northeastern states. Laws are being passed to make it a crime to help people move out of that lifestyle into another lifestyle, at least to get paid for it. I can do it, but if I was a therapist that got paid, I'd be breaking the law if I helped somebody move 
that wanted to move out of homosexuality into a heterosexual lifestyle, I would be committing a crime by doing that. In fact, there's a, uh, a Jewish psychotherapist in New York right now who's filed a case against New York. He's filed a law against New York for forbidding him to help clients that want out of that lifestyle. It's criminalized his, th- his practice. And he's not some weird conversion therapy guy, some weird, he just is a normal psychotherapist, he talks to people. But people come to him that want out. I can't help you legally. He could volunteer to do it, I guess, on the side, but if they pay him anything, it's against the law. So, so it's interesting that that law, that law comes down to crush everybody that tries to help people. Well, at the same time, the culture is kind of saying, well, you're not, it doesn't really matter if you're born that way or not. It's kind of interesting. Anyway, our feelings can never be a reliable arbiter of what is good and right and proper. The only sure way to know what's good and bad is what God says about it. That's how we know what is good and what is bad. That's why he gave us such a clear written manual. You know, I measure myself by the book and when I fail, it's my problem. It's not because, oh, God doesn't make any mistakes. So how do you get the Bible to say it's okay when it condemns homosexual behavior as unnatural and God flat out says it's sinful? Well, there's two ways. There's two ways you can do it. One is to claim that biblical heroes are homosexuals themselves and there's some really odd cases of that um, that are suggested but the most famous one which goes way back I remember conversations I had 30, 40 years ago with um, people that were boycotting Carl's Jr. actually because Carl's Jr. used to be a moral company in the old days when Carl Karcher was running it and they kind of supported some traditional marriage things and um, so the homosexuals were out protesting we had a great conversation with some girls out in front but um, She said, well, David and Jonathan, you know, they were homosexual. Because the Bible says that David loved Jonathan more than all women. Now, if if you believe that, you don't know about David. (laughs) Because David had a women problem. (laughs) That was his problem. Now, the Bible does say he loved Jonathan more than all women. But anybody that's, for one thing, it shows a complete lack of knowledge of male friendship which the bonding of males, especially two warriors that have fought together side by side, there's a love there that is, cannot be surpassed. It's different than male-female love. It's a different kind of love, but it's a bond that is probably deeper in certain ways than even a man and his wife. I mean, it's just that those guys are for each other. They've watched each other's backs for years. And, and so it's just a kind of complete ignorance. But anyway, they try to pick and choose things like that and find things. Well, maybe that one, maybe that one. The other thing to do is find Bible verses that you can kind of throw in people's faces or kind of cleverly lecture about and, and we're at one of them. That's why I'm talking about this because Matthew 19.12 is one of the ones they use to try to persuade n- normal Christian people that you know the Bible actually is very affirming of, of this lifestyle. So they, they try to manipulate the language of the Bible. So, I mean, you read this and you go, well, it's not even mentioned here, anything like that. Well, if you're part of the born this way cultural shift, the older version of what our culture was doing, you come to a verse like Matthew 19, 12, and you're reading along. So you've listened to Lady Gaga for a year or two, and then you come to this verse and you read the words, born this way. And it's about a man who can't really enjoy marriage, right? So you kind of read in, well, maybe this was a same-sex attracted person. They say, well, what if this born this way eunuch was not deformed, but just had a different orientation? Ah, yeah. Could he really be born this way in the Lady Gaga sense of it? Well, you know, there's like 
zero evidence for that. I mean, like zero, but that's what they say. And we do know that, you know, the, the Romans had a very extensive law code, and we have a commentary called the Justinian Code of, on all of the Roman laws. I mean, it's, va- it's an encyclopedia. It's this huge document. And there's, there's a line in there. I want to read it for you because they bring this up. It says, where a woman marries a eunuch. A woman might marry a eunuch. It happened. And it was kind of dealing with dowries, this particular law. I think that a distinction must be drawn between a man who has been castrated and one who is not. So that if he's been castrated, you may say that there cannot be a dowry. But where a man has not been castrated, there can be a dowry and an action for it because a marriage can take place. So that was the Roman opinion. Now, what is that about? Well, it's about eunuchs getting married. The only thing we know is that these eunuchs got married, but they married women. So it really has nothing to do with any same-sex anything. And, the, and Romans were really big in the same-sex stuff, but they didn't get married. And that's not what's happening here. Now, and so they would say, yeah, but maybe it's a guy trying to fit into the straight world, just like you know guys do today. Well, maybe, but you can just say maybe about anything. You can make up reasons why that. Maybe he wanted somebody to host dinner parties and that's why he married her, you know, like in that movie with Ronald Coleman or whatever. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for that. And because they don't have any testosterone being produced, maybe they wanted somebody to iron their shirts. I, it just doesn't, there's, we don't know why they got married, but we just know that there were rules about the dowry thing with that. But it doesn't matter anyway, because physical eunuchs Jesus is talking about are not what he's talking about. He just brings them up as an example of, of somebody that, is kind of gonna be single, generally speaking. So the context is about these disciples saying not to marry, um, they're not gonna get married if it's forever. And he's saying that choice that some people make and can do that without a lot of trouble because while for some, nature's made them that way for birth, that's all he's saying. That's the only context in which he's using it. And others have been physically, physically mutilated. But people in Christ's kingdom can be granted a gift. And the gift is to handle their singleness without a lot of torment of desire. That's all he's saying. So marriage is male and female. It's been that way from the beginning, Jesus says. Eunuchs, he's just talking about as a contrast between choosing to be single. But if you want to forgo marriage, he says, realize that some can handle it easily, other people cannot. Some uh, do forego marriage. But Jesus' only reason for mentioning the physical units is this contrast. Physical units have no choice. Whether they were born that way, or they were made that way. Celibacy, eunuchs for the kingdom, is a choice. And singleness is a wonderful thing if it's practiced for the kingdom of God. Paul has a whole section there in 1 Corinthians 7 we read earlier. But he does concede. He says, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. It's just too hard. If it's too hard, get married. But there are circumstances, like I said, where marriage is impossible in certain kinds of times, or intimacy within marriage is impossible. And you know, when that happens, let's say you've got a spouse that's very ill for a very long time and it's just, it, you're a caretaker, you're a nurse for the rest of your life, basically. That can be hard. But you know, God understands all that difficulty and trial and pain you're going through. He totally understands and he's there for us. That's where faith, hope, and love have to come in. You be faithful and wholehearted and you actually might be surprised what the Lord can do in different situations to help you with desires that are unfulfilled. What he can do in you and what he can do for you. God is there for you. You need to know that. There's a special grace for those whose hearts belong to the Lord and are seeking to live for him 
in their circumstances, even when their circumstances are very difficult, whether it's a married person whose spouse is sick or far away for a long time or hard-hearted or in a dungeon somewhere or in prison or whatever, or whether it's a single person with no obvious outlet that's legitimate biblically for their sexual desires, whether through circumstances where marriage just never happened or afflictions of other kinds, maybe even same-sex attraction. That might be one of those afflictions that people have to deal with where marriage is just out for them. So if your God-ordained circumstances make marital intimacy impossible, God will provide you with special grace to accept that in a positive way. It's not magic, it's just that God is there for us, and if we give our hearts to him, he's gonna help us through those things. Okay, now I wanna do something that I never do, ever. First time, 30 years, here we go. (laughs) I'm gonna show you a video (laughs) as part of a sermon, which I never do. Uh, I've done it in classrooms, but I don't do it in church. And I want you to see examples of what I'm saying related to same-sex attraction, okay? So I'm going to show you two. Um, God does love, seek out, and save LGBTQ whatever people. And we should love them too and seek them out and welcome them. Never view a human being as beyond God's grace or unsavable or unchangeable. God saves them as they give themselves to him and he gives them grace to live holy lives and contented lives, not always without struggle, but just like with us in our struggles and sinful impulses, genuinely growing in grace. There's, there's an elder down at Community of Faith Bible Church. He's just the sweetest elderly man He's one of their pastors there. He's same-sex attracted. That has never changed. He's remained celibate his whole life. And he says, it doesn't bother me. I I just don't go there. He's just the greatest guy. But he couldn't be here today. So I'm going to introduce you to um, David. So let's watch this. Uh, There's a church in England called Living Out. And they've made testimonies. They reach out to the homosexual community in London. So I'm going to show this. Okay, go for it. with God, he's always faithful. I can actually depend on him. And I think that's the incredible security I have. I just wouldn't want to give that up for anything. That is a life touched by grace. That's a life touched by grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse um, 9 through 11 there, he mentions all these sins, including homosexuality, effeminacy, and stuff. He says, they won't inherit the kingdom of God, drunkards, covetous, revilers. He says, but such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's such good news. That's such good news. Washed, sanctified, justified, that's grace. And every sinful sinful lifestyle can become a thing of the past for a person that comes to Jesus Christ. So David experienced this grace that lets him live for Christ, which he wouldn't give up for anything. That's what a Christian is. And he's doing it as a celibate, as a a eunuch for the kingdom, if you will. But you know, no matter how broken you are, sometimes God does absolutely impossible things. I mean, impossible things like he did for um, the next couple we're gonna talk about, um, Sean. Sean was a same-sex attracted Christian man and he got married. And you know what? To be married, you don't have to fall in love with women. You just have to fall in love with one woman. So let's watch this. Uh, profound, really. You can't outdo God. 
You just can't do it. He can bring wonderful surprises when we put all of our trust in him. And he may want people to be eunuchs for the kingdom of God, and he may provide a spouse and a change of desire that honors him and his creation order. You never know. You never know. Our only job is to love him, serve him, follow him, and let him do his wonderful things. So you, we can know that whatever he ordains is right, and there's grace to live an obedient and a fulfilled life if we're yielded to him. We can know that. Sometimes people are fearful. Well, what can I do with all these feelings? Grow in grace, serve the Lord. The intensity of those feelings will become quite manageable over time. It's kind of like the person addicted to pornography. They, they can't imagine being free of that pull, that shameful burden that they bear, but if they actually stop, the, the pull really diminishes and goes away and that they never expected would happen. Even unbelievers, you know, there's a whole series of YouTube videos now of unbelievers, just guys who quit pornography and, and how their life totally transformed. I mean, uh, so anybody can get rid of compelling, drawing, powerful desires and be better all the way around. So for the believer, we have way more resources than they have. We actually have a renewed spiritual heart that God gives us when we come to him. And whatever our sinful inclinations are or our impulses are or our orientations are, they can be diminished and set aside more than we imagine. More than we imagine. So we just need to nurture new habits. What did Paul say? Do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a real thing. That really happens. And we can be different people. Transformation, that's what the Holy Spirit does best. And I think what he said about labeling yourself is really important. I don't label myself gay anymore, even though that's primarily my attraction, he said. I don't do that. Our ident identity is a really important word. I identify with Christ. That's my identity. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm a Christian, and I live with Christ. He's my hope and my joy. You know, in times past, men were made eunuchs to serve powerful men. Uh, a eunuch lived for his master, the one who put him into service, and the single Christian, the eunuch for the kingdom, but voluntarily, isn't, it does that for Christ. He is the master, and he's the one we serve with our lives, our bodies. It's a position of great honor and can lead to deep friendships and an incredible level of love that are very satisfying and very joyful. I want to share one other scripture with you. It's about eunuchs. Real eunuchs do miss out on certain things in life, but eunuchs that belong to the Lord have a really special promise. Isaiah chapter 56, there's a it's really an interesting chapter. It's all about the renewing of the world that's going to come someday and how God's going to bless Israel and, and change the universe, basically, to match him and be glorious. And that's, the, that's actually the chapter where Jesus had the words, um, my father's house will be a house of prayer. That's where that comes from, that chapter. But God speaks to foreigners, non-Jews, and he speaks to eunuchs in that chapter. And this is what he says, Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Isn't that amazing? 
And like we talked about last week about marital situations, this life is short. It's really short. And eternity is really long. So if we have to endure some grief here or some lack here, it's going to be way more than made up for in eternity. Way more than made up for. And there will be no regrets at all there about anything that happened here. Not at all. Let's pray. Lord God, always give us the perspective of eternal glory. Let us always see ourselves as aliens and strangers on earth because that's what we are called in scripture. Give us a love for all people that you've created, a special love for those trapped in sin and those that our culture is so adamant to keep them there, help us to love them. Show yourself as a savior. Do it again and again and pour out your salvation on those who feel the most trapped. Give us your heart of compassion, we pray in Christ's name, amen.